great joy even in the midst of trying circumstances and even this morning in the midst of suffering. How is it that we might have joy in the midst of suffering? It is sometimes asked why a good God doesn't do away with suffering. If God is all-powerful and he is all-good, why does he not just do away with our pain and with our suffering? Don Evans gave us a great answer by asking us to imagine, okay, if a, God good, a good God should do away with suffering, what are the first things that we might tell him to do? What are the first things that we might ask him to get rid of? Where would we start? How about we start by asking God to get rid of the terrorists and the bombers and the murderers? That would mean that there'd be a lot less suffering for people, and that would be good. Of course, those suffering would not yet be eradicated. So next we might ask the Lord to get rid of all pedophiles and all drug dealers and all thieves, and we can see that the world is becoming a better place, but it's still not perfect. So next we will ask him to get rid of those people that are unkind and those people that are liars and those people that gossip and those people that are selfish, and then we stop. We stop. Why do we stop? Because we realize in our prayers that we are asking the Lord to get rid of us. We're asking the Lord to get rid of us. Yes, we suffer, but we also cause much suffering ourselves. Those times when we lose our temper, those times when we uh, tread on people that we might get what we want, those times that we uh, ignore our kids because we are uh, too tired or busy, those times when we gossip about a colleague, those times when we're just plain nasty. When we ask God to get rid of suffering, we're actually asking him to get rid of us. And the Bible tells us that God will get rid of all suffering, but he is delayed this gracious work that we might have the time to realize that we have caused much suffering and seek forgiveness from his hand. He patiently tolerates the temporal suffering of this world, that we might not endure the eternal suffering of hell itself. And so his hand is stayed. Now understand when I say this, that this does not mean that all suffering or your suffering is the direct result of your own sin. It actually might be that sometimes our suffering is the result of our own sin. If, you are, if you're a terrible employee and disrespectful to your boss and you get fired, you will suffer unemployment. And it is unemployment that has come from your own hand, so to speak, from your own sin. But not all suffering is that way. Very often we suffer not because of our sin, but because of the sin of others. The sin of others. All those who have been abused or neglected can testify to this. Then there is suffering in our world that is due to sin in a more general sense, not due to any particular sin. Cancer is a great suffering in this world. And you don't get cancer because of your sin or because of the sin of your father. It is a Jew, a testament to the brokenness of this world. What this means is not the sufferings that are a result of our sin, but that suffering is just an integral part of our lives. And we know this. We turn on the news, we see it internationally, we read the paper, we see it nationally, we see it in our community here as we work our way through the flock notes. We experience it in deep and profound ways in our own lives also. Suffering is 
a part of life. And we live in a culture and a day, as I have said before, that is remarkably ill-equipped to deal with suffering. Remarkably ill-equipped to deal with suffering as we have increasingly drifted from our uh, roots in uh, historic Christianity. We have become less and less equipped to deal with our pain and with our sorrow. Why? Because the Bible gives us a worldview that enables us to deal with suffering. A worldview that you do not get from going to the mall. A worldview that you do not get by playing golf. A worldview that you do not get through any other form of social activity, but is found in the Bible alone. And as we approach the Bible this morning and consider how we might endure suffering with joy, I want you to know that we are approaching a man in Paul who is equipped to address this topic with us. When we think of suffering, often we think, you know, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've endured. How how can you stand up and speak about suffering? And I don't dare to on my own experience. But we come to the Lord, but also the Lord through Paul, a man who suffered like no other. Uh, Let me read you four or five passages, uh, just confined to the book of 2 Corinthians, where we get insight into uh, Paul's life. First of all, we read Paul saying, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Later, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who are always being given over to death for your sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us. Again, Paul says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves to you in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit. Again, if anyone is a servant of Christ, this is a great line, if anyone is a servant of Christ, Paul says, I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, he says, with great with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I detect, uh, probably not unintentional, but a note of humor and all that. Paul says, all these things have happened to me, and worst of all, there's the church. <laughs> the anxiety he felt, the love he had, the burden he had to care for the church. Paul is a man who suffered a lot. And as we come to, this, come to him this morning and come to the word the Lord gave to him, we come to a credible source. 
incredible source. Not only had he suffered a lot, but he was able to persevere with joy. In this context that I've just read, and more specifically in this immediate context in Philippians, where Paul finds himself in prison, he writes this great letter of joy, this great celebration um, of the Lord's goodness and of his own uh, joy that is uh, deep within his soul. How is it that Paul is able to have such joy amid suffering? How is it? The secret comes in the worldview Paul reveals in verse 21. We're going to ask three questions about this. First of all, what is the worldview? Secondly, how is it possible? Third, what difference does it make? What is this worldview? How is it possible? What difference does it make? Let's start together in verse 21 by asking, what is this worldview that enables you to have joy in suffering? We read it there. See it with me. It has two parts. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, Paul tells us in the first place. I wonder how you would fill in that blank in your own life. To live is what? Fill in the blank. It's a rhetorical question, but only sort of. I I want you to think of an answer in your own heart and in your own mind. If you had to pick one word, one word to summarize the single most important thing in your life, that thing that you could equate with your identity, that thing that you would say, for me to live is what? I suspect most of us don't necessarily think about this on a daily basis. It's a tad philosophical, I guess. It could be a number of things. Perhaps for us to live is family. Perhaps it is friendship. Perhaps it is career. Perhaps it is comfort. Perhaps it is influence or power or uh, love or leisure. Perhaps it is the Lord himself. Perhaps it is being a good person. It can be hard to diagnose. What is that single most important thing in your life? And, and, and I ask you this. We all know the right answer is Christ, okay? But we're trying to get beyond the Sunday school answer to find out what the real answer is, you know? Uh, what is that thing that, that, that you would use to fill in this blank? Let me ask you five questions, five diagnostic questions to, to help you maybe get a sense of, of what that most important thing in your life is. For you to live is What? First of all, what do you do with your imagination? William Temple said that your religion is what you do with your solitude. I love that phrase. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. So what is it that you find uh, you think about when you wake up in the morning? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you wake up in the morning? What does your mind wander to and drift easily toward when there's nothing else that demands your attention? Uh, what scenarios do you habitually imagine? What do you do with your imagination? It may be that those things you dwell on uh, are the things that might fill in the blank. Secondly, what do you do with your imagination? And then what do you do with your time? Time is a major idol in our area, which can be redeemed because it tells us those things that are most important to us. The things that we spend our time on tend to be those things that are most important to us. So pull out the calendar and take a look. Where does most of your time go? What appointments would you never miss? What appointments would you never miss? And what people or things will you cancel everything else for? What are those things in your life? They might fill in the blank. Third, what do you spend your money on? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is 
also. What is it that you spend your money on? What is it that you go into debt for? What is it that you just have far too much of? I read this week, or heard this week, that the average American buys 68 garments and seven pairs of shoes a year. This has doubled since 1991, which is pretty recently for it to have, have doubled. Where does your money go? What is it that you spend your resources on? This may help you fill in the blank. Question four, how do you define a success in life? What is it that you feel you need to have? Are there ways in which you really want to be perceived by other people? Are there things in your life that you'll do anything to get, even sin to get? How do you define success in life? That may be how you'd fill in the blank. Fifth, and lastly, what is it that you fear losing? What do you spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about what keeps you awake at night? What are those things that you could not live without? What are those things that you imagine is your worst case scenario? What are those things that get your emotions out of control? It may be that these things might fill in the blank. How would you fill in the blank? To live is what? I hope you have a a few options in mind. Paul says, of course, what we know to be the sort of right answer. For me, to live is Christ. Paul says, my one word, the most important thing, my identity, the thing my life is all about is Jesus. And if you look at my imagination and you look at my time and how I spend my money and how I define success and what I'm afraid of, you will see that they point you inexorably to one thing, that Jesus is the most important thing for me. Now, it's not that all these other things are bad, and Paul lived a very full life and no doubt had all sorts of of interests. It's good to love your family, it's good to enjoy your career, so on and so forth. The point isn't that these things are bad, but Paul is saying, no, those things are good, but I have found something that is so much more valuable. I have found something that is so much more satisfying than anything this world has to offer, both in its goodness or in its brokenness. This world has nothing that might impact me as much as Christ has. He is supremely valuable to me. That is what Paul means when he says to live is Christ. Jesus is the one who is supremely valuable to me. And I find my hope in him and my life finds meaning in him and my fears and my angst find peace in him. He is the one thing that I cannot live without. The one thing I can't live without. To live is Christ. Because he says that, he's able to say the second half. Therefore, to die is gain. If to live is Christ, then to die is gain. It's a very strange statement because if death does anything, it brings loss, not gain. How is Paul able to say that death brings gain? He's able to say the second part, that death brings gain, because of the content of the first part, to live is Christ. If to live is your family, then at death you will lose them. If to live is your career, then at death you'll be separated from it. If to live is obsess about your appearance, then at death you will lose it all and the worms will be sure of it. 
If to live is influence, then death will bring loss. But if to live is Christ, then death will bring gain. Why? Because if to live is Christ, then at death you get an eternal measure of the thing you wanted most. If to live is Christ, then at death you are ushered into a state where you have an infinite measure of the thing you hold most dear, namely Jesus himself. He is the the one thing that you can long for in this life that you will receive a, a double portion of and more in eternity. If life has been about walking with Jesus, death will remove the distance and the space between and enable us to have more of him. This statement, to live as Christ, to die as gain, only makes sense if Christ is in the middle. It only makes sense if Christ is in the middle. And it's a challenging thing because for many of us, faith is important but not the thing that we find our lives practically orbit around. They're one of the things in our galaxy. And church is one of the things in the galaxy, and Jesus is one of the things in our galaxy. But it really orbits around that thing that is most important. Paul says it cannot be that way. Jesus must become the most valuable thing so that your life is about him and so that your death will bring gain. Well, how is it possible for us uh, to get there? Okay, that's the right answer. Very helpful. But how are we able to really internalize this and experience this and say ourselves and mean it? Yes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Second question, how is this worldview possible? The answer is the gospel. The answer is the gospel. The only way in which we can say and mean with any passion in our souls that to live is Christ and to die is gain is through the gospel itself. This is not a thing that you can work up within yourself. This is not a theory that you can hold to and somehow apply in your life. This is not a legalism that you can beat yourself up with and think, I need to make my life more about Christ so that to die is gain. It is a thing that can only come by grace. How? By realizing that for Jesus, verse 21 reads very differently. Jesus doesn't say to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus says, for me, to live was you. For me, to live was you. The reason I came to this earth wasn't for my own sake, it was for your sake. The reason I came to dwell amongst this people wasn't that I might teach them how to live better lives, but was primarily that I might save them from their sin and from their brokenness. That these people who are full of um, anger and bitterness and jealousy and shame and who have added much to their guilt on a daily basis, I have come to live for them. And not only does he say, for me to live is you, he says, and for me to die is also you. Death is also for you. I didn't hang myself up on a cross to somehow, you know, bring attention to myself. I have done this so that your sins might be forgiven. That the eternal suffering we are due for the things that we have done need not fall upon us because it has fallen upon me on the cross. So, Jesus says, for me to live is you and for me to die is you. And when you taste that, when you see what he has done for us, when you are ushered into the grace that is ours in 
Jesus. It changes you. When you wake up in the morning and reflect and dwell and meditate upon the grace that is yours in him, you start to say, yeah, for him to live was me and now for me to live is him. Yeah, he died for me and so therefore for me death will be gained because I will be with him. This is the great Christian worldview that enables joy in suffering, that for us to live as Christ, to die is gained possible only through the gospel. What difference does it make? We've got a few minutes here. I've got a long list. We'll get through as many as we can. Uh, before uh, looking at the, what difference it makes, I've got three caveats for you, and I hope this isn't death by eternal paper, uh, eternal paper cuts. But three caveats uh, before we talk about how uh, this gospel worldview transforms how we think about suffering. Uh, the first one is that in saying we can have joy in suffering, we are not trying to take suffering lightly. We're not trying to minimize suffering. The Bible never says deal with suffering by realizing it's just not that big a deal. It's just part of this physical world, and you know, soon you'll be beyond that. No, suffering is real, and the Bible takes suffering very seriously. And if you are suffering this morning, the Bible takes your suffering very seriously. And the Lord takes your suffering incredibly seriously. And his intent is to minister to you by his grace to ease that suffering. The point here is not suffering's not a big deal. It's that Jesus is so much greater. Second caveat, because we can have suffering, joy in suffering, that does not mean that suffering is somehow to be pursued. Because we recognize that the Lord can work through suffering, that doesn't mean that we pursue it. It doesn't mean that to be holy means to suffer. Presbyterians, we struggle with this. The Lord is most glorified in you when you are most miserable in him. The thing the Lord wants for your life is always the hardest thing. It's kind of the Presbyterian approach. And as a Scottish Presbyterian, it comes very easily to me. Right? This idea that um, happiness and joy is somehow not from the Lord. No. It's not the way it works at all. We don't pursue suffering just because we can have joy in it and the Lord might work through it. Third caveat is that suffering is not to be excused. Suffering is not to be taken lightly. It's not to be pursued. But suffering is also not to be excused. By this, I mean that because the Lord works through suffering and because we can have joy in suffering, that does not make suffering okay. And it does not mean that we stand back when we see injustice and when we see evil and when we see oppression and say, suffering, the Lord is at work in the hearts of these people. No, we are called in the wider biblical picture to be active about these things, to confront injustice, to confront oppression, and to do all that we can to bring about a state of peace. Suffering is not to be taken lightly, not to be pursued, not to be excused. But let's do five things that this worldview does for us. How this worldview transforms how we think about suffering. Let's look at these in the text. The gospel means that we can have suffering and joy. 
when, suffer, when that's the gospel means we can have joy in suffering, when suffering, verse 12, is the result of persecution. The gospel means we have joy in suffering when suffering is the result of persecution. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Later on in verse 29, he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This idea that as we are brought into union with Christ, yes, we receive his righteousness full and free to our account, but we are a true brothers now with him, which means we not only share in the joyful things, but also in the hard things. Not only in things that make our lives peaceful, but in the things that might cause us to suffer. We are united with him, and because we are united with him, we may suffer because of persecution. Just as he suffered persecution, just as Paul suffered persecution, so we also may suffer persecution. Illustration of this, uh, this week I had lunch with the worship director over at the Falls Church, and they've just found out that their uh, appeal to get their building and finances back uh, was not granted, and so they have lost their church building, and they have lost all the funds that they had in their account at the time this case uh, went before the judge. And so uh, just imagine, imagine that as a church. Imagine if we found out next week that all this facility and all our resources uh, was being taken away. Why? Because the false church have taken a biblical stand on the issue of homosexuality. And so their suffering is a direct result of persecution. As I'm sitting having lunch with this guy, he's telling me this story, and I'm just thinking what a nightmare this is. And I say to him, this is just really hard, I'm sorry. And he smiles and he says, Jesus is worth it. What is a building? What are these walls? What are a few dollars in the account? (laughs) Take it. Because you can't take the thing we want most, which is Jesus. And so on one hand, we stand in solidarity with our friends over at the Falls Church, but on the other hand, we're not naive to think that these things won't come to us also. These things won't come to us also. Personally, in our workplaces, who knows, perhaps us even as a church. And we are able to find joy in the suffering that comes through persecution because we know that Jesus is worth it. Secondly, the gospel means we have joy in suffering when, like Paul, suffering is used to reach unbelievers. Look with me at verse 13. What's happened has been used to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guards and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I just think this is a really funny picture that's painted for us in verse 13 because Paul is being held in house arrest and he finds a guard is chained to him. Day after day, moment after moment, he has one or more guards chained to him. Paul looks at his guard, doesn't think, oh, this here is my imprisoner. He thinks, this guy must be elect because there's no way that God would have chained him to me for all this time were I not meant to share the gospel with him and him come to Christ. So, uh, Roman guard, check this gospel out, right? And then we find that not only do one or two guards know about this, but the whole imperial guard and all the rest, we're not exactly sure who all the rest refers to, but uh, the imperial guard uh, we know is the whole praetorium, a large group of soldiers that hear the gospel and have it confirmed to them through the preaching of Paul. 
And so Paul, in his suffering, has joy because it gives him an opportunity to evangelize. And so it is the same for us. There are lots of things in our life. You might not be chained to a Roman officer. You may be chained to a desk. You may be chained to a relative. You may be chained to a circumstance. And rather than focus upon uh, the negative side of that, Paul has joy because he sees uh, the positive opportunity that's before him. The gospel brings joy in suffering when your suffering gives you the opportunity to reach unbelievers. Third, the gospel means we have joy in suffering when suffering is used to encourage believers. Verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verses 22 and on also pick up this theme again, that the Philippians have been encouraged as they have seen Paul endure this suffering. They've been encouraged because they've realized, huh, that he is able to endure this pain. Jesus is able to get him through this. Paul is not timid and afraid and cowering, but is celebrating in Jesus, even in the midst of this terrible circumstance. And if he can survive this terrible circumstance, if Jesus is enough for that, then Jesus is enough for my circumstance too. This is the feeling you get every single time you go on a missions trip. Because wherever you go in the world, you go to a place poorer than greater DC. And you see believers who have nothing. I I, I think of the friends I've met with and prayed with in Cuba and Cambodia and more, and they have nothing, and they have joy. And you think, if you can deal with these things, I can deal with the fact that I'm not very happy my HOA assessment just went up. So it reinterprets suffering a little bit. And so if you're in the midst of a suffering that's far beyond the HOA, if you're in the midst of a suffering that is painful, you can find joy in the fact that others will be encouraged by how you navigate this situation, how you work your way through it. It will be a testimony to the fact that Jesus is enough. I'm out of time. I'm going to give you one more concluding point. Gospel means we have joy in suffering when suffering gives us the opportunity to make Jesus look great. The gospel gives us joy in suffering when suffering gives us the opportunity to make Jesus look great. When Jesus is the most important thing in your life, when you have realized that by understanding that you were the most important thing to him in his life, your goal and desire comes to make him known. And it's a beautiful thing that our hearts do. When we are pleased with something, we have to tell other people about it. We have to celebrate it. That's why we put up pictures on Facebook. Because it's not enough just to have this joy. We need to share it with other people. It's not enough, and it's almost like the act of sharing is what completes the joy. C.S. Lewis has a very powerful section on that in The Weight of Glory. The idea that in order for our joy to be complete, we must magnify the thing that we take joy in. And so it is for us with Jesus that when he is the thing we live for, it becomes a joy to make him look great. And how powerful to us is that when we are suffering? Because it's not that we downplay our suffering, as I have said. It's that we say, despite this, in the midst of this, 
Jesus is still enough. We say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My strength and my heart may fail, but you are my strength and my portion forever. Meaning that um, <laughs> I met with Bill Stell, one of our senior saints. He's in his 90s, and he was in hospital after a surgery. And I was speaking to him about life, and I was speaking to him about death, because our job in the church is not just to help people live well, but also to ensure that we might die well. And he spoke about his present suffering and said and testified to me that he was not afraid because to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so that through his death, he wants to make Jesus look great. I thought, amen. I thought, to, I thought amen. And then I thought, I long for that. I long to mean, I long to say those things and mean them. And so our suffering comes. And in the midst of our suffering teaches us that we have something much more valuable in Jesus himself. I'm out of time. I am over time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and for the realism with which it addresses us. We recognize there is much suffering in this world, both that we um, have to endure, but also that we cause. And so we thank you, Lord, for this word from Paul, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that gives us the worldview that we need to have joy in suffering. That as we see all that Jesus has done for us, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Enabling us, enabling us to celebrate in persecution, celebrate when those who are far from God are reached with the gospel, and able to celebrate when believers are encouraged and able to celebrate when Jesus is made to look great. I pray that you would just let these thoughts percolate more in our hearts and in our minds, uh, that we might glean from them that which you have to say to us this morning. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.